Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we're going to be talking about standing out from the crown with blind tasting, literally. And our guest is Hobie Wedler, scientist and entrepreneur. And welcome to the show, Hobie. Robert and Peter, it's an absolute honor to be here with you. How are you guys today? We're great. We're great. Can you please give me and Peter, a brief overview of your background and what you do today, both wine and non-wine. Absolutely. I was uniquely positioned to be the blind wine guy because I uh, literally was born with no eyesight. So I was born completely blind and grew up with absolutely incredible parents who did a lot of things really well. But two that I'll highlight here are that they never lowered the bar and they never lowered expectations they had for me and my sighted brother. So we were, you know, maybe our chores might have been different, but we were held to the same high standard. And that was such a blessing for me and for him as well. The other thing they did is they taught us that these are our lives to live and we need to take responsibility for our actions. And, you know, when you're blind growing up in a sighted world, the expectations can be low. You know, oh, wow, you went to college and got a, an associate's degree, you know, for, and I understand that's a big deal and it is a big deal, but like, and, and that's a great thing to, to have on your resume. But like for, for my parents, it was, that would have been great. But whatever I wanted in life, you know, whatever my personal best was is what they championed. And we all just need to be able to do our personal best and be able to thrive. And, you know, I, I can see being nervous about having a blind child uh, as a sighted parent. And, you know, you guys may, may know what parenting is like, and I can see the fear there. You know, it's this very sighted visual world that we live in. So I ended up falling in love with science in high school, particular chemistry, and I wanted to teach chemistry. That was my ultimate goal. And this is a great example of we don't always do what we think we're going to do, right, when, you know, later. So anyone who's, who's young and up and coming in the industry out there, what you think you want to do may not be what you end up actually doing, just so you know. So I wanted to teach chemistry. And I wanted to be the guy that taught not advanced college chemistry, but freshman chemistry. I wanted to make chemistry classes that felt like boring prerequisites that people had to take at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning after a long weekend of partying fun. So I ended up, long story short, I ended up going out to the University of California, Davis, and getting a degree in United States history and chemistry. Why history? Well, because I didn't know if chemistry would necessarily be accessible to me as a graduate student. So I, I also love history and studied history. Meanwhile, as I was doing that, I was lucky enough to take a couple of courses at the Viticulture and Enology program out at UC Davis. They were very topical courses. One was on wine appreciation and one was on an intro to winemaking and wines of the world. And what was so interesting for me is that, you know, throughout those courses, I just fell in love with the industry and wasn't working in wine at all, but realized that, hey, wait a minute, you know, this is grapes are grown in my backyard. I was born and raised in Petaluma, California, and I've always had a love for things that are super local, like hyper local. Uh, wow, if this is all being done right around me and turned into an amazingly complex good as wine, you know, this is fascinating. But I didn't really do anything with wine until in 2011, I got a phone call from Francis Ford Coppola. And when Coppola calls you and asks you to do something, you say, sure. And then you hang up and say, oh, what did I just agree to? So Coppola, I was very honored. Mr. Coppola and his team asked me to design, uh, originally for a hospitality experience, a truly blindfolded wine experience. You know, and, and they basically said, we want a blind person to host it. Coppola had done something similar in Asia, but he felt like he could do it much more authentically here at his wineries. And the rest is history. 
we built Tasting in the Dark, which was a hospitality experience for a while, for about two weeks until the national sales team came and experienced it and said, hey, wait a minute, we've got some opportunities here. So that, you know, one thing led to another. And I ended up, luckily, in graduate school, I flash forward, I did end up applying to graduate school in chemistry and, and getting in also at University of California, Davis. I studied computational chemistry. Everything was done on the computer. Throughout grad school, I was able to travel around with Coppola's national sales team and host uh, these, these truly blind wine experiences. I also had the opportunity and the honor of teaching several of these freshman chemistry courses while in graduate school and realized that I was spending a lot of time making my lecture materials not accessible to me, meanwhile making them very accessible to my students. So my students didn't speak chemistry. They wanted to see a professor who pointed to the board and said things like, oh, we do this here and we you know, divide by that and then we multiply by this and you need to study these five points and then you'll be ready for the midterm on Friday. They didn't like to hear me talk about chemistry, even though I had very detailed and up-to-date PowerPoints that really accurately described everything I was talking about. You know, spending all this time and money on assistance to make lecture materials accessible to my students and not accessible to me made me think, is teaching chemistry really the right direction? So these tastings in the dark are really, truly opportunities for me to, to teach and I ended up earning my PhD in 2016 and going into a completely different field than I expected. So if it takes getting a PhD in something to realize you don't want to do it, well, either you've gone a little bit too far or you're a Gemini like myself who has a hard time making decisions, right? I ended up taking all the, all the chemistry stuff into the food world, into the world of food and beverage. And I love the speaking that I do. And I love using the talks that I give and this particular tasting as an educational piece and a way to get people, we'll talk more about this later, but to get people more excited about a product than they ever knew they could be. But I also do a lot of product development work in the wine industry, a lot of competitive set tastings, really helping people figure out what is the lexicon of their wine and how can they describe their wine and how do their wines differ from vintage to vintage. I've also aligned my palette. I'm not marketing this too much yet, but I've spent a lot of the pandemic really working on aligning my palette with a lot of the, the main critics, your Dunnicks and your Parkers and your Laubes and and whatnot of the of the industry, you know. So I can I can kind of help people figure out where to submit their wines when when they're looking for a certain positive critique, which is a lot of fun. And then in the totally open food and beverage world, I work as a product development expert, pair my organic chemistry knowledge with my food knowledge and my sensory expertise to to consult on on product development. I, I'm a weird scientist who also absolutely loves marketing, so and, and communications an agency that I, I co-founded. I think we're the only blind-owned creative and marketing agency in the world called SensePoint. And we have a really good time over there doing completely different work that might be another conversation for another day. But I'll, I'll finish this little story, by, and I'm sorry, I'm sort of going on here, but I'll, I'll finish up by just saying that, you know, my main sort of secret weapon in the industry, I think, is my palate, is my ability to taste something and really be able to identify all of the flavors and aromas and textures that, it, that appear in it and, and explain that to other people, but also perhaps just as importantly, help people identify where products are from or really write you know, good tasting notes or, or get buyers and key stakeholders excited about flavors that they didn't even notice, right? It's interesting because I developed my palate, I realized early on when I was a child, I'd never been able to see and I've always loved spending time in the kitchen. So when I was 10 years old, my parents for my birthday got me a 42-quart soup pot. And one of my chores was to uh, make large pots of soup for them to take to work. You know, they would freeze it in, in small aliquots and then take it to work. 
to have a healthier lunch option rather than going out all the time to eat, which I totally understand and value and appreciate. You know, that led me to just play with flavor and fall in love with flavor. And I consider myself an artist through and through and, and a scientist as well. But I was able to understand the language of flavor and what tastes a certain way when you combine one thing with another. And ultimately, really, when we get to the bottom of it, really learn what flavors are and what flavor means. And that was just so incredible to have that experience uh, growing up and thinking about the world of, of flavor and aroma and texture. And it really paved the, the way for me in the wine industry. A lot of people think that, you know, you have a palate and you're sort of born with it. That's not true. I know Peter said he's studying for the MW exam here uh, in, in a couple of months. That's a huge feat in and of itself. But you don't have it. Once you have it, you have it. You really have to practice it every day, just like playing a guitar or any art or any craft that we have. You know, we have to practice it and really hone our craft all the time. For sure. So, Hobie, it sounds like you've really developed your palate and all your other senses, not having sight with it. And you mentioned your program, Tasting in the Dark, which, as I understand it, is sort of like a, an experience for wine brands to stand out. It's a sales and marketing tool. How exactly does Tasting in the Dark work? Yeah, it's a great question. So Tasting in the Dark can be done in a variety of, of ways. It's a highly customizable experience, but I'll give you sort of the boilerplate and, and we can riff from there with uh, any wine brand. Really, I mean, I've, I've used this throughout a variety of industries and markets around the world, but we'll keep the conversation focused here today about wine for obvious reasons. One of the things that, that that we like to do is we like to really make people feel comfortable first and foremost when they're under blindfold. So we don't want the blindfold to be a gimmick or a fear factor or anything like this. And and you know we're, I'll just use an analogy. A lot of your listeners may have uh, may have attended a dining in the dark experience where you sit down in a very dark room and maybe you wear a blindfold, maybe you don't. A lot of the servers might be blind, and you're asked to eat a meal without eyesight. And, and that ends up being, in my opinion, a little bit gimmicky. People end up being really excited when they, you know, when the lights come back on and they notice that, oh, they haven't spilled on themselves. And there can be little competitions of, oh, who spilled on themselves tonight? You know, I, I don't know. It's just, it sort of uh, detracts from a lot of, a lot of what I try to do, which is really use the blindfold to, uh, or the eye mask, as I call it, to refocus our attention when we're not distracted by our eyesight. So typically what I'll do is I'll have a, an array of empty glasses arranged in front of each participant, usually between four and six glasses that, you know, again, that are all the same, just universal stemware uh, that are empty. And I'll have an eye mask down on the table and usually a water glass and a napkin. And then once the eye mask goes on, I spend a good amount of time, 10, 15 minutes talking to guests about, you know, what does it feel like? What are you taking in from the world around you? What are, what are the sounds we hear? What are the smells we experience? How does the chair that you're sitting in feel beneath you? And then we really talk about wine as an art form and, and explore that, that whole sort of beautiful intersection uh, between art and science that wine spans so beautifully and so remarkably. You know, then from there, we, we talk about the subjectivity of wine and how people are very willing to offer very quickly their subjective feedback when they look at something. Oh, that painting looks beautiful versus, oh God, I would never hang that on my wall. That just looks hideous, right? Whereas with wine, you know, we don't necessarily allow ourselves to be subjective. And, and we here as professionals, I think, I think do a little bit more. We know what we like, we know what we don't like, and we're not afraid to say it. 
But a lot of people just haven't had enough practice with wine to, to really know that. So I, I like to create a safe and comfortable space for people to share, you know, what is it that they personally right now enjoy the flavor of versus what don't they necessarily enjoy the flavor of. And then we have a kind of magical part of tasting in the dark where I like to I call this the priming of the aromatic vocabulary. And I usually build custom between two and five aroma samples of things that I feel will really are accentuated in the wines that we're tasting. Obviously, I will have tasted everything beforehand and have a really good understanding of the product. It's interesting because when we look at something that, say, is red, you know, we've all known what the color red looked like since we were a child. These things are sort of ingrained in us. But how often is it that you're going about your daily life and you catch a particular smell on the air and you think, oh my gosh, I, I know that smell. What is that? And you can't quite place it, right? So where I come in is that I've really developed the same level, I think the same, same level or maybe better that most sighted people have for visual vocabularies, colors and things like this. And I, I've related that to aromas that I smell. So I have a whole catalog of aromas in my mind. And I try to prime people's aromatic senses by, you know, letting them smell lemon, whether it's essential oil or actual lemon peel that's been broken down in a little bit of base wine. I like to use base wine for my aromas so that the aromas that people are getting are smelled, you know, in wine and in that, in that same good environment. And then we can talk about it and say, yeah, that smells like lemon. What does oak smell like? What does peach smell like? You know, whatever, the, what does wet rock smell like or petrichor? People need this stuff and they need that bad amount of information to really focus their mind and, and hone their craft when tasting wine. And I think that gives us the opportunity to not say, okay, you're crazy if you smell melon and Sauvignon Blanc. No, there's no melon in there, but absolutely the chemical compounds that make melon smell the way it does might be there. And we talk a little bit about organic chemistry and volatile chemistry and this sort of thing. And then we walk through each wine, first starting by smelling it, not saying what color we think it is or the varietal. And then after we smell it and take a few minutes to, to smell it and show them a few little party tricks there, then we taste the wine and really analyze the flavor as the wine moves from the front of your palate to the back of your palate. And think through that and understand that, that flavor, you know, complex flavor or simple flavor or whatever. And we talk about it. We put words to it. I don't like to just stand up there and, and be the one talking about it. I, I get the crowd to talk and everyone who I'm presenting to talks and shares what they're thinking. And it ends up being a, just a wonderful and dynamic conversation among friends, which I think is a really special way to do it, an important way to do it. Sort of my favorite, favorite part about this, really. We sort of bond over wine. And, you know, we'll talk about this. I hope you, you ask about this in a bit. But, you know, this experience creates memories because it's usually like nothing anyone's ever done before. And then once we finish up with the wines, Sometimes I'll pair really unique foods with wine. One of my favorite food pairings, if any of you end up doing this experience with me, you'll probably see it, any of your listeners, that is, I, I, there's a goat cheese from Norway that is a very, very concentrated cheese. So they make it by boiling milk down and reducing it by about four to five times before turning it into cheese. And the result is just this creamy, amazing, unique deliciousness that people probably have not had a chance to taste before. And we just, we just have so much fun with that and, and getting people excited about things that way. And then unique meats and cheeses and different pâtés and things like that. Things that people don't normally think of when they think of necessarily regular meat and cheese and what we might pair with wine. So it, so it definitely creates a very memorable experience. From the wine brand's perspective, how does this lead to more sales for them? 
well, you might imagine, and this is the, the fun thing about it, is it's very straightforward. You know, whether you're a premium wine brand or a nationally distributed or globally distributed wine brand, the whole goal is to get the key stakeholders, the people who you want to be excited about your product, get them to remember your product. Not only remember it, but talk about it. It works well for consumers. It's it's fine when you, you know, I've done these for pickup parties and that sort of thing. And I have a good time doing those. And I usually do those for friends. And, you know, it's, it's great. I, everybody everybody likes it or it comes out a little bit ahead and it's it's fun. The most impactful version of these tastings is done with trade teams and and buyers and distributors, people who really think about, okay, who do I need to make my wine go from an entry in a catalog to a story that people are going to be telling not only their families and friends, but their, you know, the people they're selling to and their coworkers and anyone they can think of for months and even years to come. So I'll give you an example. With Francis Ford Coppola, we did a variety of, of uh, seminars for the Safeway group before they were bought out by Albertsons. Safeway has a really wonderful and unique, fairly unique program where they have wine stewards in every store, which are people on the floor basically talking about wine and educating the customer base about wine. And we found that when we got them excited about Coppola wines, and we chose the wines very carefully, there were always wines that were on set, but, you know, very important to the store as a whole. We saw, I can't, give exact numbers here because of an NDA, but we we saw significant increase in, in the Safeways at every region we attended, not for just weeks after or months after, but sometimes four, five, six years after we presented, the numbers are consistently up from, from where they were before we presented. And there's a funny thing, you know, anytime I go in and, and, and meet with anyone who randomly, who partook in one of my experiences, they always say without fail, Hey, you're the guy that did the blind tasting that I tell all my friends about and use to sell a ton of wine in my store. Or, you know, we've done other experiences where, where we brought in large groups of buyers, buyers from restaurant chains, hotel chains, and even off-premise chains. And, and we'll do an experience for them. And what do we see? We see them getting really excited, going back and talking to their teams about what they just did, and then buying the product. The fun thing about it is it's pretty simple. And I will say that I have the whole experience, at least in the alcoholic beverage industry, trademarked. And, you know, it's my experience. It's, it's something that I run with and, and do. And, it, you know, people have tried to do this on their own without someone who's actually blind, you know, running it basically and talking about with the, with the flavor and, and aromatic knowledge that I have. And it just, it doesn't work. Been tried before and, and it just doesn't have the same impact. So you got to have the whole, the whole full experience to really create that that lasting impact. So what do you think it is that makes people want to buy a wine over others? And how does a blind tasting experience play into that motivation? And and what kind of wineries does this work well for and not work well for? To me, a purchase of wine is, is one of three things. It's because you like the label on the shelf and you don't know what to get and the price is right and you grab it. Number two is, is because... You know, you read about the wine and, and it's something you're interested in. But most consumers, and I've done, I've read, I've not done studies on this, but I've read studies on this. Most consumers that are looking at wines in the store don't know necessarily what they're looking for and, uh, and, and buy because of something that, that looks good or where the, where the price is right. Or maybe they've read about it or heard about it. The third way that people buy wine, and, and in particular, I think more, more of the premium wine and the $20 and, a, and higher, tends to be because of a story. Someone told them about, 
a, a really delicious taste of that wine that they had. Someone had a really cool experience like the one that we're talking about, like tasting in the dark and, and they tell their friends about it. And you got to try this, you know, I'll use Coppola as an example. You got to try this Coppola wine. Most mainstream consumers, that is, let me be very careful here. Don't talk about wine all that much. And if they have one wine or one brand that they've heard about from their friends, that's the one they tend to home in on and, and think about. So for me, it's it's about creating these memories and getting people, not necessarily me, there's only one of me, but getting people excited about wine. So they tell their friends and their colleagues and those colleagues tell their colleagues and it just sort of spreads out. And what we do is is we create something that people have never done before. So no one has sat around a room wearing blindfolds having a conversation about wine, or, or very few people have if they haven't worked with me. And, and that's where this really creates everlasting impact. And your question about where does this work best? I think it works best, honestly, for high-end wines that are distributed in the three-tier system. So, you know, wineries that are mostly DTC, yeah, it's, it's a fun experience and it's a good way, to, good way to get people more excited. If you're sort of a, a, a very uh, limited trade setting, you know, and, and, and wine brand, it can work really well if you want to go into one of your highest end, you know, accounts and either do this as a thank you for, for buyers or, uh, or, or, you know, general, general staff, either at an off-prem or, you know, maybe front of house at an on-prem. It really works the best with brands that are state or nationally distributed, where we can go into groups of buyers or distributors and really enhance and increase and bolster that excitement about what people are tasting and, and build those everlasting memories. So is so just to reiterate, so the Tasting in the Dark series of, of events, it takes someone out of their comfort zones and, and reframes a wine in a way that is really bespoke to them and something that they wouldn't get somewhere else. And that creates a lasting memory that is, because it's taking them out of their comfort zone and connecting in a different way than something like other marketing materials would or the label would or something like that and would and changes the buyer perception and creates this affinity. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's exactly what we're doing throughout this experience. And it, it gives people a point of connection. Yeah, you're exactly right. It, it creates affinity and it really creates a point of connection. And, you know, when we take people out of their comfort zone, those are the things that end up being most memorable. Absolutely. The experience creates an affinity. It creates a memory and it creates something that people can remember. And what you made me think of just with that, that question of where is this most useful Yes, it's very useful for selling more product, but I just want to throw this anecdote out there. In 2018, Thomas Keller, the French Laundry, was looking for a really innovative way to get his front of house to think differently about how they describe uh, food and drink to patrons that are, that are eating at the restaurant, dining at the restaurant. And, you know, when you think about a guest at a restaurant like the French Laundry, you tend to, you know, you really think about, okay, this is a, a high-end experience, an experience like no other. So you want to be able to explain those things well. And what we did, we actually didn't use any food at all, but we used wine. We spent, you know, about two hours with the entire front of house staff doing an in-depth tasting in the dark, really trying to describe the wines in many different ways. And all of the front of house staff left feeling like and, and commenting that they were better at describing food and drink. They really felt like they were more, they had more capabilities than they did before when approaching a guest on their level and describing a dish to them. So you mentioned that you've trained your palate to mimic or understand a lot of the major wine critics' palates. 
What are the key factors that that entails? Is that mostly like the structure of wines, the texture? Is it certain flavors? Like what, what's involved in that? It's a hard question to answer because every, you know, every critic likes things for reasons that we don't necessarily know. For me, it's, it's mostly aromatics and mouthfeel. A little bit of flavor, but, but mostly it's, it's aromatics. You can tell a lot by alcohol by volume. And, and the way that the wine hides or, or does not hide that alcohol. And for me, it's just sort of a sense. You know, I've tasted enough Dunnick 90 plus point wines that I can, I can think about or suckling or whatever. I can, I can taste a wine and just sort of have that, that sense about it. I haven't done this work too much yet in the industry. It's something I want to do a lot more of. But to me, it's, I can taste a wine and just sort of sense what they're going to, what they're going to find intriguing about it. What can wineries do differently if they identify which critics may appreciate their wines? Any specific examples? Well, yeah. I mean, if you, if you have a critic in mind that you want to, you want to send your wines to and, and get, you know, at, at the right time and get the, the higher scores from a certain, certain critic or group of critics, that's where they can really, they can really figure it out. So I've sat in on competitive set tasting panels and, and been able to advise, okay, this is where you want to send this, this wine right now hold off on this one for six months. And, you know, it's, it's tough because winemakers are very passionate about their wines, right? It's their art. It's their, it's their craft. And I don't want to come in and rain on people's parade and say, I can tell you when to send your wines where. But I also think it can be really helpful for, for people in a, in a certain way. What's your thought on if a winery should submit to more critics or, or only specific critics? Um, is it the more shots at gold or should they be very targeted? That's a good question. You know, I think that people aren't chasing scores is something that people have done in the past. Scores are very important, but I think also getting good reviews of your wine, good write-ups is also very important. So I think, I think finding a few critics that people follow who like your wine and getting, getting a few really good scores is better than just getting the whole sea of a wide variety of scores. People could get lost in that. So what other ways do you help wine businesses? Boy, the tasting in the dark and the and that really sitting in on competitive set tastings is is are two really big ones. The other ways that I've helped in the past is with blending. You know, people have it'll be time to blend a few months before bottling, and they'll have you know different flavors. And I don't I don't market this service at all, but people that I know will call me in and say, "Hey, Hobie, can you can you help us out here? Really make a final decision." A client and now dear friend of ours in Italy made a wine called Il Vagabondo. And his story is that he uh, collects grapes from really around famous areas of, of Europe. So he makes his wines in the Piedmont. And I'd say most of his uh, fruit comes from the Piedmont region. But, you know, for instance, he did this most recent wine that he did. We were able to help him figure out it was actually, it was mostly Piedmonte, Rolero Arnais, Sauvignon Blanc, Timoroso, things like this. But he had some German Riesling around. And we tasted a few different iterations of it. And we landed on an iteration that was like 7% Riesling from Germany and yeah, mixed in with all these other Italian white grapes to create a really amazing flavor profile. So I'm, I'm sort of that guy that, that helps wineries go from the, the very tame, okay, this is what we've always done, let's do this again, to let's really think outside the box and, and have a really good time with, with some of the blends that we do. I'm curious, kind of going back to the critic assessment, because I could see wineries using that as like, hey, I want to like figure out how to target or figure out which wines I said to send to Jeb Dunnick versus... Uh, someone at the Advocate or Galoni or whatever. If you had to describe like the some of the major critics' palettes, like how would you discern the difference? Because I think um, 
maybe your impression of the fact that you've, you've trained against these will help, can maybe articulate in a way that maybe others would find valuable. Yeah. So I think someone like Dunnock likes wines that are a little more full-bodied, but with, with restraint on the nose. You know, it's hard to describe without actually tasting a wine. It's not really something I can teach, unfortunately. And someone like a, a Laube might like like wines that are a little a little bit a little bit lighter on the palate, a little more sort of I don't want to use the word refined, but a little more light, a little bit less in tannins, that sort of thing. But again, this is really I, I'm having a hard time describing it because I've never I've never really described it. It's just sort of something that I that I taste for. And as someone who is blind and works in, across the industry, how do you think the wine industry does in supporting the specific needs of the blind versus other industries? Yeah, you know, I think it's a great question. And I think that for me as a blind person, I think the wine industry does a pretty good job. You know, I think we think about accessible websites and that sort of thing as, as much as we can, uh, which is a great thing to do and an important thing to do. But I also, you know, think that we can always be thinking about diversity and inclusion more and, you know, I have a whole idea about diversity and inclusion in general, which is that in business, because I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a businessman myself. And boy, when I'm in business, I uh, really like to, I, I think it's important to have a more diverse team that can solve problems in a more dynamic way, right? Because when we're more diverse and we, when we think about things differently, we're usually able to arrive at unique conclusions that maybe others wouldn't have arrived at. And, and having this diverse ability to solve problems really helps us improve our bottom line, right? Because we're making better decisions, we're thinking about things more succinctly, et cetera. And I just think it's important when we think about all these things to, uh, to really, you know, think about how important it is to, to have a diverse team and not just hire one person who's like from a diverse background and say, okay, they're our diversity officer, we check the box. But, but really, not just to talk the talk, but really walk the walk with it and embrace working with people who have different abilities and come from different backgrounds. You know, my ability to think about a solution to a problem is going to be very different than someone who's my same age with my same skin color who's sighted, for instance. And what are ways the wine industry could do more to be inclusive and accessible? You know, Chaputier with their Braille wine labels. Braille labels are great. Chaputier does a great job with that. I, I think it's a cool story and it, it really sets them out. Uh, one of the things that we're we're seeing more and more in the industry is uh, the use of QR codes. So if you have a specific, if you're a brand and you want people to be able to identify your your wine, who might not be able to read small print or who are low vision or or blind, you know, putting a QR code on your label in the same place for every label, that's a really cool way, and and have it take you to the website, and then you can use that to actually sell more products. Hey, what would what other what other wines are similar that we make that you might like? You know, it really, really gets people excited. Um, definitely thinking about having accessible websites. I do a lot of work in website accessibility, actually through the creative and marketing group and, uh, and can assist with that for sure. You know, just making sure that you explain things as well as you can and, and explain, you know, if you're an, a tasting room host and you're trying to explain a, wine to a, explain a wine to a customer who might not be able to see it, really describe the color. What is the hue of the red? What does it remind you of? What is the color of the white wine? What does it remind you of? You know, really being as inclusive and descriptive as possible is so incredibly helpful. So you mentioned you know, the benefits of problem solving with a diverse team and, and all that. What, As a businessman yourself, what do you think are the opportunities for the wine industries by becoming more accessible? Like, in terms of growing customer base or, you know, deepening relationships, et cetera. It creates great stories to tell. 
you know, if you're if you're the one winery that's working to make your products more accessible to the blind or visually impaired community by partnering with a maybe an app that gives them information on their phone, that's a that's a feel good story. You know, and, and one of the things that I do, I work a lot with a company called Be My Eyes, and Be My Eyes provides assistance to blind people historically through volunteers, where you know you'll you'll scan a photo of some, or you'll actually make a call through their app and get connected with a random volunteer who can see what's going on through the back camera of your phone and actually give you really insightful, useful information and help you read a piece of mail, pour the exact right amount of of wine in a glass of wine, identify a bottle of wine on your rack, this sort of thing. They launched a program called Specialized Help where their companies who sign on to it can provide expert advice to the large 300 plus thousand community of, of blind and visually impaired users. So what I'm trying to say is if you do something cool and, and you make your products more accessible to a larger group, it's a, yeah, you can, you can be happy because you're helping a group of people. But two things here. Number one, it's a feel-good story that people can't mess with and can't poke holes in, right? It's amazing for marketing. And number two, you're helping, usually when you think about helping one group with one thing, you're helping so many other people. And my example for this is the wheelchair ramp or the curb cut. You know, people had to fight for those in the 1960s. Uh, Ed Roberts is a disability advocate in Berkeley who who fought hard for these. And, you know, the city didn't want to spend the money. They said, you're like less than 1% of the population and you can get assistance going down and up on, on, you know, from curb to street and street to sidewalk and what have you. And then when eventually they were mandated by the ADA after being trialed by, you know, a few cities and, and, and a couple of states, they said, people started saying, wow. These things that were originally designed just for people in wheelchairs are so incredibly useful to everyone. Like, what were we thinking? You know, so I, it's it's very valuable to, the opportunities are endless when you think about making something accessible to a wider group. I am curious after talking about all the different areas on, all the different areas on uh, sensory and, uh, and identifying aromas, as you've done these tastings with people and you take them out of their comfort zone and they they can only have their sense of smell, I'm wondering what have you seen about how people talk about a sense of smell that come from different backgrounds. So I feel like as I've studied wine, the WSET is really aligned up to this kind of like British Anglo-Saxon kind of paradigm. But when someone doesn't know gooseberry, but maybe someone from Asia or Caribbean might recognize a tamarind, uh, you know, and understanding like like they just a different sense. Like how can this help expand the vocabulary of wine that people can use? Well, one of the areas that I haven't done a whole lot of work that I really want to do more is working with different cultures on pairing wine with with foods from their culture. You know, it's it's so interesting. Just a little anecdote about this uh, Chardonnay that's sort of a, an everyday go to in my house that I've I've been you know this vintage was was very popular and I'd been drinking it for years and you know when I smell it I get all sorts of green apple and uh, like browning green apple and kind of a pie crust sort of buttery note from the oak and you know, maybe a little bit of uh, like like darkened pastry shell, this sort of thing. And I had one of my good friends smell it, who's from Guam. He was over for a glass of wine, and without me even prompting, he smelled it and said, oh my gosh, this reminds me of the taro we used to boil from my childhood. And I never would have used the word taro to describe wine, but I think it's really important that we open our minds to other cultures and other ways that we might describe wine Rather than, you know, most sommeliers who I've met from Asia or from Latin America, they still have had to train their palates to be really like what you're saying, this sort of Anglo-European sort of style of talking about brambly fruits and red fruits and black fruits and what do we mean? When they have 
fruits and vegetables and, and food and, and, and aroma descriptors from their culture that work every bit as well. And in sometimes, in some instances, a lot better than the ones that we use. So I think it's really kind of amazing what we can do if we open our minds to different cultures and really try to expand the wine industry and the wine vocabulary across sort of a more world food and, and aromatic vocabulary versus just, just one sort of sub-region. It's a great question, Robert. I love it. Hope as we want to wrap up the episode, we want to end on a personal note. What was the most memorable wine you've had in the last year and who did you drink it with? Oh man, that's a great question. So one of the people who got me into wine is my partner's stepdad. And we were over at his house drinking some absolutely amazing wines. But one of the wines that we were drinking was, and it was a baby. It was 2022 and it was a, it was a vice versa, 2018 uh, Las Piedras Cabernet. And we were all sitting on the couch. You know, I like to drink big wines like that after a meal. I don't like to pair them with food necessarily because the wine in, in so many cases just speaks for itself. So we were sitting on the couch. It was a Sunday night after a really good dinner. And my partner's stepdad opened this bottle of Las Piedras from vice versa. And we just took one sip and we were all just blown away. And it's amazing. You know, so much of wine is what you taste in the glass, but that's only half of it. The other half is who you drink it with. And it was a very special group of people I was drinking it with. And I think that made the wine even more special for me. Great. Yeah. It's all, it's always the, that other X factor of who you're drinking it with. That's why, uh, that's why Peter likes to drink with me. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we want to thank you for your time and talking about your interesting uh, business and how, how you've turned you know, your life experiences into uh, something that's additive to the wine industry. We appreciate you explaining everything you do and hope you get some, uh, some wineries and guests or listen to this podcast will reach out because it's a it's super interesting way to expand and, and ch- take people out of their comfort zone and really uh, you know, change their view on wine. Well, thank you so much. And anyone can reach me at, at my website, hobie.com. That's H-O-B-Y.com. So uh, even if you don't want to work together, but you just want to chat about interesting stuff, don't be strangers. The motto in all of my businesses is elevating happiness. That's what we're all about. Have an abundance mindset, stay positive, stay real, and don't be a stranger to me. Perfect. We'll make sure we link those up. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.